Welcome to OECD Podcast, where policy meets people. It's September, and for many OECD countries, it's back to school time. Except that this year, back to school is a whole different proposition because of COVID-19. Since the virus began circulating in January 2020, and perhaps even earlier, it's been a roller coaster ride for students, teachers, parents, and administrators around the world. Overall, 188 countries temporarily closed their schools in the first half of 2020. This affected more than 1.5 billion young people. And some schools that reopened have had to switch back to remote learning, sometimes just days later, as the virus transmission in classrooms sped up. What are the trade-offs between getting kids back to school and keeping communities healthy? How can schools adapt to COVID? And will this virus radically change the way we learn and teach? I'm Clara Young, and here to discuss all this and more is Andrea Schleicher, who is the Director for Education and Skills at the OECD. Thanks for speaking to us, Andreas. Thanks, Clara. Now, there's intense focus right now on how to open the new school year. And what's making people nervous is that back to school is happening as the infection rate remains high or is going up. Even Korea, which has been a model country in terms of testing, tracking, and tracing, has put schools back online in Seoul and other hard-hit areas. And that's because students and teachers are testing positive. So is it safe to go back to school, Andreas? Yeah, I think we can reconcile safety and health and uh, education in schools. Uh, There may be individual school school closures necessary. I think that's quite clear and the conditions require. But overall, I'm quite confident. In fact, even before the summer break, we found a number of countries that were able to manage this quite well with social distancing in place and good training of staff and uh, good awareness among students. I do think uh, that is possible. The cost of not doing this to individual students, to society, is very high. Let's talk about the costs. Um, You know, what risks do we run by having a disrupted school year and by closing schools? Yeah, for students who uh, don't have, you know, the right technology at home, who do not have the parents to create a good supporting environment, who do not have access to uh, great people helping them, and most importantly, who have never learned how to study on their own. I think this has been devastating. You know, we think about, you know, for individuals, we talk about, you know, maybe 3% dent in lifetime income. Yes. Uh, This is a heavy, heavy cost, and it is incurred particularly to the most marginalized students. So in a way, this uh, crisis has exasperated the many inequalities that we already have in education. So what are we doing about that? You know, the home environment, uh, a lot has happened. Uh, many young people have uh, now at least, you know, technology at home. Uh, systems have also become more responsive to the technologies that's actually available. Like in some countries, you know, computers may not be there, but mobile phones are. And uh, television has played an important role. You can look to Spain. Some countries have been very creative in creating a broader mix of technologies. It's not so much, I think, the hardware is very much about the software and the people, really. I think uh, you yeah. know, it's about building this kind of personal fabric between students and teachers. And uh, yeah. that's really the, the crunch point. I think that some of the, the findings that are coming out are that student engagement when in the online classroom is difficult. 
Yeah, that's exactly the point. It's uh, learning is always a relational process. It's about that personal interactions. You know, the one thing that young people will take away from this whole experience is, you know, did I have a teacher who realized, you know, my passions, my dreams? Did I have that kind of personal support and, so, and understanding? And where students feel it, they're going to go out of their way in learning. But where students feel this is just about broadcasting, whether by a teacher or by a computer, they're going right. to disengage. And right. once again, the most marginalized students are most at risk of losing out in this. Right. What are some techniques that are working and what are things that are not working in remote teaching? If you have a teacher just delivering a lecture on Zoom, that's not very effective. That's basically, you know, old uh, teaching using new technology. I think you need to change your pedagogy. You need to capitalize on the opportunities of technology, not making learning more and you know, more interesting, more engaging, more granular, more personal. And then bring in the personal aspect, the support, the coaching, the mentoring uh, on a one-by-one basis. And I think if you use that combination, you're going to be a very effective teacher. Technology can amplify good teaching, but it doesn't replace for teaching. It's possible that the pandemic could make us um, more ready uh, to experiment and to take on new technologies. Do you see that happening? Yeah, you know, that's not just possible. That is actually happening. You know, I mm-hmm. see more technological innovation, but also more social innovation in schools in the last few months and in many years. Could I you tell that, us about that? Like <coughs> some interesting examples? Well, you know, the most uh, obvious one is the use of technology. In the, the question of the what and how we learn, uh, basically, it's not just about, you know, the accumulation of subject matter content. It's really, you know, can you set your own learning goals? Can you manage mm-hmm. your learning process? Do you have the metacognitive abilities, the resilience actually to work through hardships? Can you work on complex problems? Can you, you know, study uh, for sustained periods of time? Many schools and teachers have understood that actually uh, learning is boundaryless, like we can actually combine learning in school and out of school. Typically, you know, schools are very good to keep students inside and the rest of the world outside. And I think this pandemic has inverted that. The connections with society have become so important and many schools have really done that well. And I'm pretty sure a lot of this will remain after the pandemic. Let's get back to um, some of the the, the safety aspects of of reopening schools. Um, What are you picking up on about best practices um, for going back? Well, you know, actually, this is perhaps the aspect I've been most surprised at. You know, I would have expected, you know, social distancing is going to be easy in university and high school. It's going to be really tough in primary school. And actually, they've seen pretty much the reverse. I think... uh, Young uh, children understand very well when you instruct them and you explain that to them, they adhere to those kinds of safety protocols, the health protocols. I think that I think is quite well established, you know, even wearing masks in in, in social spaces, Uh, but you need to do a lot around that. Uh, You need to, you know, you have capacity constraints, Uh, classes will be smaller Mm -hmm. and uh, certain subjects obviously are much more risky than others. You know, singing, dancing is obviously more complex than math and science. Uh, so you see changes in the curriculum. Uh, I think the hardest challenge is local capacity. You need to have school leaders and you need to have teachers who take, you know, individual responsibility. You know, they need to understand there is a problem with health. You know, I need to intervene. I need to take, you know, uh, maybe have to put a classroom in, in quarantine. I may have to, you know, uh, help support a teacher and so mm-hmm. on. So I think uh, 
there's a huge demands on, uh, on, on schools, you know, have been run like factories in a one size fits all method and that no longer works. Now you mm -hmm. really need schools who are very closely related to the community. And part of this is building trust. You know, you can reopen a school, but whether parents come and students come very much depends on whether you can make a compelling case that you actually reconcile, you know, the education and the learning with the safety and the health of, you know, students, teachers and, uh, and the environment. I think schools have also been using all kinds of uh, organizational techniques like uh, staggered recreational time, staggered meal times, yeah. staggered classes, all, all that. Yeah, and I think, again, you know, there are now well-established practices on how to implement social distancing in schools to ensure mm -hmm. that, uh, the, the, you know, you need to coordinate public spaces to limit congestion, all of those things. But uh, again, schools have been quick in most countries to mm -hmm. figure out how to do this. I read that in Denmark, uh, there were some schools that were giving classes in graveyards so that the students could have a place, you know, space and air. And um, in India, I think that they're in some poorer areas, teachers were using loudspeaker systems to, mm -hmm. to teach. So I think teachers have really been coming up with new ideas to try to deal with the pandemic. Yeah, you know, 9% of learning is uh, now a plan for out of the school building. And I think it's actually oh, great. Oh, as high as that. Okay. Yeah, it's actually a great experience. You know, if you think about science, you know, science is, observe, is about observing nature, you know, experimenting. And I think the outdoors can be a, a fantastic environment to support some of this. It's going to be more difficult in wintertime. But I actually think, again, you know, there has been a lot of creativity out there. Now, what about resources to help um, teachers and students with mental health issues? You know, there's a lot of anxiety, there's isolation. You know, it's very high on the agenda when you actually survey schools. We have some data on this. It's about uh, between 70 and 90 percent of schools across countries who have actually arrangements for this in place. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, at the very same time, very few schools and school systems have been able to hire a specialist capacity for that. So most of this really rests on the shoulders of teachers. You know, as a teacher, you're no longer just an instructor anymore. You're now also, you know, a coach, a mentor, a psychologist, a social worker. Right. And are they getting training? There's a lot of training available, but again, much of that is online. So it depends mm -hmm. on teachers, you know, accessing those kinds of resources. But uh, uh, I think uh, in, a, in a fair number of countries, provision for that has developed quite a bit. I think the bigger challenge is that, you know, uh, teachers are often not well connected among themselves. They work with a high degree of professional autonomy, but not really in a collaborative culture. Yes. So uh, I think that's in my view, the bigger part, not the training, but you cannot share your experience. You cannot, you know, consult with colleagues. You, you have a pretty high number of uh, teaching hours, so that leaves you relatively little time to do other things than, than teaching. What about students who um, fell behind during the school closures? The International Labor Organization survey found that 65% of young people, they said that they have learned less since the pandemic and 9% think that they're going to fail. What um, should be done for students who are falling behind? Well, you know, that's my biggest concern and worry. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be very, very hard for young people to catch up. Uh, some countries like Germany have, you know, during the vacation, put a lot of provision in place uh, that was prioritized for the most marginalized students who have fallen behind. 
I also think when schools are reopening and have capacity constraints, it's really important to give priority to those students who need that pastoral support most. Uh, but the reality is, you know, when school, school students come back, you'll find a lot more diversity in student needs. Classes have already been heterogeneous uh, with a lot of diversity, and now that's going to be amplified. So uh, whether those uh, children will catch up, you know, unfortunately, statistically, uh, past experience suggests uh, it's, not, it's not good news. I think the reality <laughs> is what happens in schools tends to reinforce, not moderate. Uh, social disparities. So I think there's a lot that school systems need to do to redouble their effort with extra time, with extra support uh, for the students who struggle most. Some students have uh, completely tuned out. You know, if you look to countries like Italy and Spain, these are double digit figures of yes. students who basically have got lost in a way. Which is worrisome, yeah. And uh, it's not just that they lost learning, they may have even lost trust in school. You know, mm -hmm. for many of those young people, school was the place of stability. They may not have had it in their home, not in, their, in, in society, but every morning they went to school. And uh, if that place closes, you're left with nothing. And I think to get those people back really depend on teachers. Not all is bad, though. Um, there seems to be evidence that young people are taking initiatives in terms of their education, especially those over the age of 20. 44% of the people surveyed by the International Labour Organization pursued new training courses since the start of the pandemic. And young people have also been volunteering in great numbers. So can we build on this? Is this the beginning of something new? Well, I, I think so. You know, uh, what we have seen is that what matters most in education is agency. You mm -hmm. know, your capacity to shape your own future, your capacity to imagine, to build something of intrinsic positive worth, your capacity to navigate ambiguity, to manage tensions and dilemmas, to take responsibility, to mobilize your cognitive, social, emotional resources. And I think a lot of this is happening. You know, I expect after this pandemic, many people, many young students will go to their teachers and say, well, hey, you know, I learned uh, uh, how to study on my own. Why can't we do more of this in the regular classroom? Mm -hmm. And you're going to see hopefully many teachers who will say, well, you know, teaching doesn't have to be all a one-size-fits-all model. I've learned how to teach and educate in a different way. I've been, become a designer of innovative learning environments, and they're going to go to the school principal and say, why can't we do that more regular? So, yeah, I think the pandemic has enabled a lot of innovation, uh, technological, social innovation. Uh, but to make that sustainable and systemic, I think it's going to be a huge challenge. There's a big risk that we just, you know, slip back into all mm. practice when things return to normal. Education is still, you know, a heavy industry. Decisions are made at the top, rolled out to schools. Schools are not well connected, you know. Everybody looks upward and very few people look upward. And I think that is a big impediment now. But again, you know, I think the pandemic has shaken things up and uh, hopefully we're going to see uh, better connections uh, among teachers, among schools and among education systems. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us, Andreas. Thank you, Claire. And uh, thanks for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clary Young. To find out more about what we've been talking about, have a look at the OECD's latest Education at a Glance and two new OECD reports, The Impact of COVID-19 on Education and The Economic Impacts of Learning Losses. To listen to other OECD podcasts, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, 
and soundcloud.com slash OECD.